ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Monday the 5th of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, fuel of the future. The government prepares new vehicle efficiency standards, but will it be enough to convince consumers to go green? And spy ships in the Middle East. Is Iran using a cargo vessel to coordinate attacks in the Red Sea? It loiters a lot in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. And, you know, when you think about how much merchant shipping costs, merchant ships don't tend to loiter. It's long been thought to be an intelligence collection vessel, uh, and I'd say it probably is. First today, the next stage of Ben Robert Smith's long-running defamation case is underway in the federal court in Sydney. Mr Robert Smith is appealing the court's decision last year to dismiss his case against newspapers The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Canberra Times. The judge had found that it was more likely than not that Mr Robert Smith had been involved in the unlawful killings of four Afghan civilians and that he had bullied colleagues. Mr Robert Smith has strenuously denied those allegations. Our reporter, Samantha Donovan, is following the case and joins me now. Uh, Sam, remind me, why was Ben Robert Smith brought this case in the first place? Well, Sally, back in 2018, the newspapers you mentioned published stories alleging that Mr Robert Smith, who's a a winner, of course, of the Victoria Cross and other military honours, had been involved in the murders of four civilians in Afghanistan between 2009 and 2012, and that he'd also bullied colleagues and had assaulted a woman he'd had an extramarital affair with. Mr Robert Smith, as you mentioned, vehemently denies all those allegations, and he sued the newspapers and three journalists for defamation. It was a very drawn out case, disrupted at times by COVID restrictions. Uh, There were more than 100 days of hearings and dozens of witnesses gave evidence, uh, including former and serving members of the Defence Force. But last June, Mr Robert Smith lost his case with the Federal Court Judge Anthony Basanko ruling that he was satisfied that it was more likely than not that Ben Robert Smith had been involved in those four murders and had bullied fellow soldiers. He he wasn't satisfied, though, that there was enough evidence to uh, prove that reported incident of domestic violence. Ben Robert Smith decided to appeal that decision and the hearing of the appeal, as you said, has started this morning. It's expected to go for two weeks. Sam, what has the court heard this morning already? Well, the appeal's being heard by three judges of the federal court, Sally, and leading Mr Robert Smith's legal team is senior counsel Brett Walker, a very well-respected, well-known Sydney barrister who you may recall led Cardinal George Pell's successful High Court appeal against his sexual abuse conviction. Mr Walker has opened the case for Ben Robert Smith this morning and the the gist of his argument is that the trial judge, Anthony Basanko, got it wrong uh, and that these reported allegations, effectively of war crimes, were incredibly serious and Justice Basanko, he argues, didn't explain well enough the weight he'd put on the evidence of witnesses to reach his conclusion and that greater explanation and, and justification is needed when the allegations are so serious. So we heard quite complex legal argument on that at the outset this morning. 
it appeared that Justice Anna Katzman wasn't too impressed with the way the arguments for Mr Robert Smith were unfolding. She asked Brett Walker where his argument was going and said to him, we've spent the best part of three quarters of an hour being lectured about principles we're very much aware of. Um, she asked him to, to move on. Sally, two other senior counsel will be arguing other parts of Ben Robert Smith's case uh, and part of the hearings will be in closed court because some of the evidence is sensitive national security material, as was the case with the trial. Samantha Donovan, thank you very much. Well, this time next year, Australia's car dealerships could look a little different. The government hopes that its new fuel efficiency standards will encourage car makers to send over their greenest vehicles, slowly improving Australia's emissions. But critics say it could force drivers to buy more expensive cars. Angus Randall reports. This time next year, the federal government hopes choosing a petrol, hybrid or electric car will be as easy as picking a colour. Chris Bowen is the Minister for Climate Change and Energy. This is a reform at its heart about choice, giving Australian motorists and consumers more options, more choices for better, cheaper to run, more efficient cars. The federal government has released a draft plan for fuel efficiency standards, bringing it in line with most similar economies across the world. The hope is it will encourage car makers to send more efficient cars, like hybrids and electric vehicles, to Australia. Critics are warning it could make it difficult and more expensive to buy a new car. Jane Hume is the Shadow Finance Minister. A conversation that has only recently started in the last couple of days. I would imagine that the real questions here is, is it going to push up the cost of cars for ordinary Australians and cost them? And, uh, and is it going to make the economy more or less productive? Those will be the questions that we'll be looking for when we see the legislation. But Chris Bowen says the ute and family SUV will survive. These reforms, these standards will apply across an average, across a fleet. Car companies can continue to import any particular model they wish. They must meet a standard across their entire fleet. No model will be uh, mandatory, no model will be banned. Under the plan, a car maker can still sell as many petrol or diesel run cars as it wants, as long as it's also selling fuel efficient vehicles to offset the high polluters. It's about averages across a year of sales, rather than an individual car. Fuel efficiency standards have been in place in other countries for decades. Behad Jafari is the CEO of the Electric Vehicle Council. He says without this policy, car makers have treated Australia as a dumping ground for inefficient vehicles. Because these standards are in place pretty much everywhere else in the developed world, every other country but Australia and Russia, car companies every year have to spend time making their petrol and diesel vehicles more efficient. And when they do that, they send their latest and best engines or their latest and best vehicles to all of those other countries first. And then they're left over with the old stuff, the stuff that takes more petrol and diesel, pollutes more. And they have two options. One is to either send those things to the scrap heap or to shut down those production lines or to try to look for places where they can dump them. Now, usually that looks like the third world. And in this case, it's also Australia, where people earn more money, they have more money to spend. So they're able to make really great profits out of their older cars while other countries are getting better options. The final plan could look similar to the US standards, which have been in place in some form since 1975. Behad Jafari says Americans are still able to buy their pickup trucks and muscle cars. We're talking about adopting the standards that are in place in the USA, and the top-selling car in the USA is the Ford F-150. So a huge ute, a ute that compared to the ones that we have on our roads looks like a monster truck. So again, these standards don't say you don't get to buy those things anymore or we're banning those things. It just says when you walk into a Ford 
dealership, you have that car and you also have the electric option sitting there as well. Tony Webber is the CEO of the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, which represents the major car brands. He says the US provides far more incentives to car makers to meet efficiency targets and consumers to buy more efficient cars. If you want to move quickly, you've got to bring consumers along. And if that is such an important objective, and we think it is important to undertake this, but if the consumer can't afford to make the transition or can't buy the vehicle they want, the problem is they will hold the vehicle they currently have. And therefore, this policy could well backfire because we could have an older fleet and as internal combustion engines get older, they actually get dirtier. The federal government will run a month-long consultation and the new standard will come into effect on the 1st of January next year. That's Angus Randall reporting. Right around Australia, this is The World Today. Overseas now, and Iran has denied using spy ships in the Red Sea as the US threatens to target the vessels. The US-led coalition has launched several days of strikes against Houthi targets across the Middle East. Meanwhile, in Israel, negotiations are ongoing as the families of those held captive by Hamas go, grow increasingly desperate for their return. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. <laughs> In Yemen's capital, Sana'a, Houthi demonstrators are rallying. They're voicing support for Palestinians in Gaza and protesting a weekend of retaliatory strikes by American and British forces on dozens of Houthi targets in Iraq, Syria and Yemen. Muhammad Ali al-Houthi is the head of Yemen's Houthi Supreme Revolutionary Committee. The people are ready. And as our leader has said, the Yemeni people are an army in and of themselves. The Yemeni people will continue to mobilise and prepare for the confrontation with the American and British enemy in solidarity with Gaza. The retaliation comes after a drone attack by Iranian-backed militia killed three American soldiers in Jordan last week. Jake Sullivan is the White House National Security Advisor. This was the beginning of our, of our response. There will be more steps. Some of those steps will be seen, some may not be seen, but there will be more action taken to respond to the death of the tragic death of the three brave US service members. David Silby is a military historian and director of teaching and learning at Cornell University in Washington, D.C. He says the strikes were proportionate. The Biden administration, above all, wants to avoid provoking a, a region-wide war with Iran. Um, and so rather than attacking specifically Iranian targets, uh, they went after the proxies that Iran is using to disrupt the status quo. The, the red line for uh, US, uh, the U.S. government is always when American soldiers, sailors or Marines die in combat. And so those three fatalities in Jordan really meant that the U.S. had to respond in some way. But but Biden responded about uh, in about as restrained a way as he could have. And he says it's likely the full U.S. response is far from over. The U.S. is committed to that region for the foreseeable future. It's likely that they're going to continue to strike back whenever the, the Houthis strike at ships or at American bases. And it's going to be a matter of whether... Um, something even more serious happens. An American warship getting hit by a Houthi missile and experiencing casualties would be yet another red line. Um, and so this is sort of 
this is this is not a situation the Biden administration wants to find itself stuck in. There's not really a good way to wrap this up uh, and make it go away. The next target for US forces could be two cargo ships in the Middle East, suspected to be serving as military bases for Iran. The vessels have loitered in the Red Sea for years and are registered as commercial cargo ships with a Tehran-based company. As the regional conflict escalates, back in Israel's capital, Tel Aviv, the families of the roughly 130 hostages still held in Gaza are protesting outside a security cabinet meeting. This man's sister has been freed, but her boyfriend is still being held captive in Gaza. Hamas has been asking us for a lot in change of the release of our hostages, but the Israeli government should be aware and should know that hostages come first First of everything, they need to do uh, anything that they can and beyond to get them back uh, as soon as possible. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel isn't ready to accept a deal at any price. That's Elizabeth Cramsey reporting there. So is the Red Sea becoming more dangerous despite coalition strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen? And will the US target alleged Iranian spy ships in the region? Jennifer Parker is an expert associate at ANU's National Security College. And during her time as an officer in the Royal Australian Navy, she was director of operations of the Combined Maritime Forces in the Middle East. Look, it's difficult to say. Um, Obviously, we've seen in the last 24 hours the US and UK conduct a number of uh, strikes again, so their third set of strikes uh, as a joint uh, coalition uh, into Yemen and uh, supported by a number of countries, including Australia. Um, What we have seen, I think, is a reduced frequency of attacks by the Houthis. So we are seeing less attacks at the moment. And it's difficult to say whether that is because of the fact that these strikes have degraded capability or they're trying to be a little more strategic in their attacks. We're seeing that the US is warning that it may target two cargo ships suspected of being forward operating bases uh, for Iranian commandos. What do we know about that? Yeah, absolutely. So look, when you look at the types of operations that Houthis are conducting in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, these are difficult operations unless you have complex targeting, especially when you're using anti-ship ballistic missiles. So it's long been rumoured that Iran has been assisting the Houthis with their targeting. Uh, And one of the rumours is that a vessel called the motor vessel Bashad, which has been operating in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden since 2016, is actually an intelligence vessel that has been helping the Houthis to target merchant shipping and US-UK warships in the region. Previously, uh, in 2021, there was a mysterious explosion on the MV Saviz. MV Saviz was operating in the Red Sea and was rumoured to be an Iranian intelligence vessel. And during that time, we were seeing a lot of unexplained attacks on Israeli-linked vessels. And it was thought that the MV Saviz was an intelligence vessel run by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, assisting Iran and others to target Israeli vessels. So um, again, uh, in 2021, when that occurred, nobody claimed responsibility for those attacks. The US said they weren't involved, but it was largely rumoured that the vessel was limpid mined by Israel. So I guess I bring that up because uh, intelligence vessels operating in that region uh, from Iran have been a target before. What What is the front for this MV uh, Bashad? If it's not some kind of uh, staging post or forward operating base, what does it say it is? 
Yeah, so Envy Bashad says it's a general cargo ship, um, but it loiters a lot in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. And, you know, when you think about how much merchant shipping costs, merchant ships don't tend to loiter. And so this isn't new. It's long been thought to be an intelligence collection vessel, uh, and I'd say it probably is. So, you know, and there's been reports of it moving. When it moves to the Gulf of Aden, that's when the Houthi attacks occur more in the Gulf of Aden. When it moves to the Red Sea, that's when the Houthi attacks occur more in the Red Sea. So certainly uh, there is a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest it is assisting the Houthis in targeting. But I do think it would be unlikely for the US to come out and overtly target that vessel because it is flagged to Iran. Jennifer, you've you've worked in this particular part of the world um, when you were with the Royal Australian Navy with a, a coalition of nations there, 38 nations. What are some of the difficulties of operating in this part of the world with these kind of dangers when ships are not badged, it's not a conventional conflict? Uh, how difficult is it to figure out what's actually going on? Yeah, look, it is incredibly challenging and, and it is a challenge globally, you know, as merchant shipping and global trade has evolved. Uh, and maritime shipping is now the predominant amount of global trade. We've had this concept called flags of convenience. So vessels tend to be flagged to, you know, a country. You know, there's a number of landlocked countries uh, in Africa, for example, that register vessels. Companies choose to register their vessels through these countries because they don't provide much oversight um, in terms of what the vessels are doing. So it's really common. In fact, most ships around the world are registered to flags of convenience. So when you look at uh, merchant shipping, what it's doing, what it's not doing, it's hard to say, well, that's flagged to this country and therefore it's linked to that country's objective. Obviously, then you've got ownership, you've got who's chartered it. So we do know that Iran see interference with merchant shipping as a way to send a strategic message, and that's particularly evident. So it is quite complicated in that region. That's Jennifer Parker there, expert associate at ANU's National Security College, former officer in the Royal Australian Navy. For the first time in more than a century, Northern Ireland will be led by a nationalist first minister committed to reunifying Ireland. Michelle O'Neill is vice president of Sinn Féin, the former political wing of the Irish Republican Army. Her appointment as First Minister of Northern Ireland ends a two-year political impasse created by Brexit. Rachel Hayter reports. Northern Ireland's new leader realises the improbability of her appointment. It does represent a new dawn. For the very first time, a nationalist takes up the position of First Minister. That such a day would ever come was unimaginable to my parents' and grandparents' generation. Michelle O'Neill is the vice president of Sinn Féin, the former political wing of the paramilitary group the Irish Republican Army, which tried to remove the British state from Northern Ireland with violence. For three decades, from the late 1960s until 1998, Protestant unionists who wanted to stay in the United Kingdom and Irish nationalists who wanted to unite with Ireland fought... More than 3,500 people died. Today, Sinn Féin is a peaceful party and Michelle O'Neill is promising to work for everybody. As an Irish Republican, I pledge cooperation and genuine honest effort with all those colleagues of a British, 
of a unionist tradition. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is optimistic. He visited Northern Ireland's Air Ambulance headquarters near Belfast after the historic appointment. The fact that this has happened, I think, is an, a fantastic cause for optimism. I think everyone has worked really hard to bring this moment about. Everyone is committed to making it work. Northern Ireland has not had a functioning government for two years. British unionists walked out in February 2022, protesting post-Brexit trade restrictions. That walkout collapsed the administration because under the terms of the 1998 Good Friday Peace Accord, power must be shared between British unionists and Irish nationalists. Dr Peter McLaughlin is a senior lecturer in political history at Queen's University, Belfast. He describes the implications of that collapse. We've had problems as we've had right across the UK and the rest of Europe with inflation and below inflation pay rises. So that meant the public sector particularly has been struggling, rising fuel costs, pressures on the health service. All of these things have been made worse because we've had no government, because there are limitations to what civil servants can do without a democratic mandate to funding and to keep our health service and our schools, etc. going. Jonathan Tong is a professor of politics at the University of Liverpool who specialises in Northern Ireland. He was in Belfast for Michelle O'Neill's swearing-in. It was like going to a giant wedding uh, where you have tremendous speeches but you are uncertain as to whether the couple will be able to live together. He explains power sharing in Northern Ireland has been chronically unstable. Whilst the Good Friday Agreement was a very successful peace deal, the level of violence has dropped massively. What it's not been is a very successful political deal in some ways, because if you look at the last seven years, power sharing has been collapsed for 70% of the time. So it's to some extent a leap of faith to assume that it's going to work this time. Despite her clear desire to see a reunited Ireland, for now Michelle O'Neill has pledged to deliver better outcomes for all Northern Irish citizens. That's Rachel Hayter reporting. Finally today, almost one third of Australian adults are considered to be obese a condition that can put health at risk. While obesity is a complex issue, doctors say surgery is one option to help some people lose weight. The challenge is it's expensive. As Emma Pollard reports, there are calls for more weight loss operations to be done for free in the public system. On a swelteringly hot day in Brisbane, Nick Ham is swimming laps in his girlfriend's rooftop pool. But the 26-year-old hasn't always been this active. Six years ago, he weighed 188 kilos. He's now lost almost half of his body weight after having gastric sleeve surgery, which involved removing part of his stomach. It means that I can stand up tall with my shoulders back and really appreciate that I am worthy of more than what I gave myself credit for. Um, it also means that I can be fit, I can do challenges, I can take on the world in a sense. Nick struggled with his weight throughout his childhood and bullying led to depression. He says attempts to shed the kilos through dieting and exercise failed and he needed the operation. I was morbidly obese. I was set for an early grave and this has changed that forever. Nick's procedure in 2018 cost almost $23,000. Some was covered by private health insurance, but his dad helped pay for most of it by taking $16,000 out of his superannuation. He isn't alone. In 2021-22, the Australian Taxation Office approved almost 14,000 applications to fund weight loss treatment with super. 
Leading bariatric surgeon and researcher Professor Wendy Brown says weight loss surgery is incredibly effective. We now have data out to 20 years that confirm people with obesity who choose to undergo a bariatric procedure can expect to lose something like 20 to 30 per cent of their body weight and keep it off. But with 95 per cent of the operations done in private hospitals, cost is a major barrier. Eligibility for publicly funded bariatric surgery varies across the country. Melbourne-based Professor Brown says given obesity is such a significant issue, expanding access to public surgical treatment would benefit individuals and the health system. We've shown that if you treat the obesity by giving people a bariatric surgical procedure, we can minimise the impact on the healthcare system because we don't need to treat all those flow-on effects such as diabetes, such as heart disease, as intensively as we did before. Nutritionist at Health and Wellbeing Queensland, Matthew Dick says the causes of obesity are complex. It's a mixture between our genetics, the environment that we live in, the biological factors that we have. Professor Brown says it's a real joy to help patients overcome obesity. They're living their best lives. They're not just healthier, they're happier. They feel positive about themselves. They feel like they have overcome something that has really tortured them for much of their life. That's bariatric surgeon Professor Wendy Brown ending that report from Emma Pollard. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. 2024 is the year of elections from the US to Indonesia, the UK, Russia and India. Around half the global population will be eligible to vote this year. So democracy must be thriving, right? Well, it's not that simple. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.